This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 9. Terror on Screen, Part 4. On the Ground. In 2002, the year after 9-11, military enlistment rose by about 3%. If that doesn't sound like much, it's because it isn't. Enlistment had been down in the years prior to 9-11, but in 1998, for example, numbers rose by 4%. There just wasn't a massive surge of people signing up for the military like there was after Pearl Harbor, and recruitment numbers have continued to stagnate. Today, only 1% of the U.S. population serves in the military. Because of that, it's been relatively easy for the rest of the country to just continue business as usual. The most we experience of the war on terror here at home is in the federal government's budgetary spending, or more directly for the few of us who have loved ones overseas. It rarely makes the news. And as for domestic terrorism, the Department of Homeland Security says that the biggest threat isn't from Islamic fundamentalists, but from homegrown white supremacists. The place you're most likely to be exposed to the realities, and here I'm using scare quotes, of the war on terror is in entertainment media. I chose two films for this topic, Zero Dark Thirty and American Sniper. And I chose these because they kind of blend together the themes from the last two episodes, trauma and whatever-it-takes terrorist hunting, but they do so from the perspective of people who have been on the ground in the war on terror. Zero Dark Thirty is the story of a young CIA agent who dedicates her life to hunting down public enemy number one, Osama bin Laden. I thought it would be nice to take a look at a woman protagonist in a genre largely dominated by men. An American Sniper is a biopic about Navy SEAL Chris Kyle, one of the deadliest snipers in U.S. military history. Zero Dark Thirty was released in 2012. It tells the story of the fictional character Maya Harris, who is recruited by the CIA straight out of high school. Her very first case is The Hunt for Bin Laden, and it's all she does for 12 straight years. The film suggests that Maya was working on the Bin Laden case before 9-11, but it never really gives a straightforward timeline. The opening screen claims that the story is based on first-hand accounts of actual events, and the writer, Mark Boll, who is also a journalist, says the film was extensively researched, and the Maya is based on a real-life CIA agent, but also a composite of other women in the CIA. Boll told Rolling Stone magazine, I heard through the grapevine that women played a big role in the CIA in general and in this team, referring to SEAL Team 6. I heard that a woman was there on the night of the raid as one of the CIA's liaison officers on the ground, and that was the start of it. But the film wasn't even supposed to be about the SEAL Team 6 strike on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The original script was about the 2001 siege in the White Mountains of Tora Bora, Afghanistan. Bowl and the film's director, Catherine Bigelow, were just about to begin shooting when President Obama announced in a late-night broadcast on May 2, 2011, that Osama bin Laden had been killed by Marines. I still remember how dramatic the whole thing was. It was 11.30 at night on a Monday, and the news said Obama was about to give a special address. My first thought, and I'm sure many others, 
was that there had been a terrorist attack somewhere. Instead, Obama walked down a red carpet in the East Room of the White House and announced, with a little more swagger than usual, that bin Laden was dead. From that moment, the filmmakers of Zero Dark Thirty scrapped the whole idea for a film about the siege of Tora Bora. Of course, the research they had done was still crucial to the plot of Zero Dark Thirty, and the contacts Mark Bull had made over the years were very helpful in writing the new script. But Bull kept his cards close to the chest. When he was asked about sources or exactly how much of the film was based on facts, he evaded the questions. After all, he is a journalist. In fact, the question of Bull's sources stirred up a lot of controversy when Republican Congressman Peter King claimed that someone had given the filmmakers access to classified information. And it actually turned out to be sort of true. At an award ceremony for the Navy SEALs who conducted the bin Laden raid, then-CIA Director Leon Panetta described classified information to the 1,300 people who were in the room. What Panetta didn't realize was that one of those people happened to be Mark Bowl. It wasn't quite as salacious as King might have hoped. No smoking gun that President Obama had personally given the filmmakers classified info. But it did bolster Republicans' claims that senior officials in the administration had been leaking classified documents, which was a major talking point during Obama's re-election bid. The irony, of course, is that Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush, had worked closely with Hollywood producers in the months and years after 9-11, with no one making a particularly big stink about it. But that wasn't the only controversy surrounding Zero Dark Thirty. People on the left and right were upset about the film, though, of course, for different reasons. The film was set to release just before the 2012 presidential election, and Republicans claimed that it was just one more example of Hollywood elites propping up the Democratic Party. They assumed that a film about the bin Laden raid would be pure pro-Obama propaganda. This turned out not to be true, and if anything, the film is critical of Panetta and Obama's hesitance to strike the compound without proof that bin Laden was there. Nonetheless, the producers pushed back the release date from October, just before the election, to a limited release in December and then a full nationwide release in January of 2013. As for the left, the charge that Zero Dark Thirty is pro-torture is pretty hard to ignore. Bowl has insisted that the film is actually critical of torture, that it reveals how horrible the practice is. But as with 24, the lesson taught by the movie is that torture works. The key piece of information that leads directly to finding Osama bin Laden was gained entirely through torture. And once the CIA's torture program is disbanded, the analysts have no idea how to proceed. Without the ability to extract information from informants, there is very little new information available. Michael Morell, who was acting CIA director after Panetta, slammed the film for billing itself as historically accurate while suggesting that torture was the key to finding bin Laden. In a public letter, he wrote, The film creates the strong impression that the enhanced interrogation techniques that were part of our former detention and interrogation program were the key to finding bin Laden. That impression is false. Whatever Bull's intentions or the public's perceptions, Zero Dark Thirty is very torture-happy. There's never any question about whether or not it's right, or really even whether or not it works. 
It's the secretive, devious Muslims who force the hand of the CIA. Because their motives are so opaque, they can't be swayed by money or freedom or anything else, the only option is to torture them until they give up. So here's how Zero Dark Thirty depicts torture. The film opens with audio recordings of the 911 calls on September 11th. This was another controversy. Several family members were really angry about the use of their loved one's recordings without permission. A blank black screen is overlaid with crying and screaming victims, desperate voices pleading for help. Then the movie jumps directly into its first torture scene, at an unnamed black site. Dan Fuller, a CIA intelligence officer, is introducing Maya to her first torture session and the tactic of learned helplessness, in which a victim is subjected to trauma that makes them feel powerless. He's treating her with kid gloves, but she's eager to be part of the process, and the gender dynamic is immediately playing out. A hardened man gently mentoring a delicate woman, who turns out to be not so delicate. Inside the concrete cell, Dan begins badgering the detainee about the location of Osama bin Laden, telling him, When you lie to me, I hurt you, and... In the end, everybody breaks, bro. It's biology. He waterboards the detainee, demanding to know about an upcoming terrorist attack, but the prisoner's response is to just start dreamily naming days of the week. Later, Dan will warn Maya, You gotta be real careful with the detainees now. Politics are changing, and you don't want to be the last one holding the dog collar when the oversight committee comes. This really made me cringe thinking back to the Abu Ghraib photos. But this is pretty much how torture is treated in the film, as a tool that the new political regime takes away, hobbling the CIA in its hunt for bin Laden. The investigation is subject to the political whims of the presidency, and the usefulness or morality of torture is never even mentioned. And this is the heart of criticism of Zero Dark Thirty. It depicts torture in all its horror, but it takes no position on it. Well, actually, that's not quite true. In the end, Maya does discover bin Laden's hideout by tracking down his top courier, a man whose identity they discover by torturing detainees. So, torture is ugly and unpleasant and inhumane, but it works, and it's necessary. Maya doesn't directly torture anyone, but she watches hours and hours of recordings of tortured detainees, vacuuming up information from the sessions. When she's sitting in a briefing room with some other analysts, President Obama appears on a TV screen giving that famous interview where he states that he will end the CIA's torture program. America doesn't torture, he says. They look annoyed, but say nothing. Another way the film gets away with seeming objective while actually being quite politicized. Later, when they finally discover bin Laden's compound, they're again stymied by the Obama administration. Maya's supervisor confronts National Security Advisor Tom Donilon about the need for action. Agitated, he tells him, Who the hell am I supposed to ask? Some guy in Gitmo who's all lawyered up? He'll just tell his lawyer to warn bin Laden. But Donilon simply tells him, The president is a thoughtful, analytical guy. He needs proof. When the CIA chief accuses him of letting politics interfere with national security, he fires back that he was in the room when the CIA pitched weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And this is pretty much how the film handles ideology in general. It's all concealed in implication and knowing looks, 
small asides about what they've lost with the end of the enhanced interrogation program. It's a bit maddening. You just wish that someone would go ahead and say, ah, that Obama guy is ruining everything. How will we ever find bin Laden with our hands tied? But, of course, they don't. And that's because the film is written as if it's some objective view from nowhere, a historical chronicle, and not a subjective telling of an inherently political series of events. Mark Bowl stated very clearly, there's no political agenda in the film. Full stop. Period. But hey, he's a journalist. What more would you expect? Unlike Zero Dark Thirty, American Sniper does at least address some of the moral conundrums of the war on terror. Now, that's not to say that it offers complicated or nuanced answers. Everything the protagonist, Navy SEAL Chris Kyle, does during his time in Iraq is completely justified, and our military intervention there is a righteous cause that keeps Americans safe. But nonetheless, Chris does struggle with what he has to do, primarily killing women and children, while also leaving his family behind during his four tours in Iraq. So I don't know if that actually wins the movie any brownie points, but unlike anyone in Zero Dark Thirty, Chris Kyle spends at least a little time haunted by what he's done in the name of American imperialism, I mean American freedoms. The film begins with a close-up of a massive tank and soldiers carefully picking through the rubble of a nearly destroyed city kicking in doors and raiding houses. Chris is perched on a rooftop looking through a sniper rifle when he sees a woman pull a grenade out of her clothes and hand it to a young boy who approaches the convoy. You think Chris is about to shoot when the scene quickly cuts away to a young Chris shooting a deer. That was a hell of a shot, son. You got a gift, his father tells him. So the movie sets up very early that Chris is a natural when it comes to wielding a rifle. We then see more of Chris's formative years, his brother being bullied at school, and a long diatribe from his father about character and standing up for what's right. I'll go ahead and read it in full since it's such an important ideological foundation for everything Chris and his fellow soldiers do in Iraq. There are three types of people in this world, sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. Some people prefer to believe that evil doesn't exist in the world and if it ever darkened their doorstep, they wouldn't know how to protect themselves. Those are the sheep. And then you got predators. They use violence to prey on the weak. Those are wolves. And then there are those who've been blessed with the gift of aggression and an overpowering need to protect the flock. These men are a rare breed who live to confront the wolf. They are the sheepdog. And we're not raising any sheep in this family, and I will whoop your ass if you turn into a wolf. At this point, Chris's father slaps his belt on the table. But we protect our own. If someone tries to fight you or tries to bully your little brother, you have my permission to finish it. Then he asks Chris, did you finish it? Chris nods. Then you know who you are. You know your purpose. So this has been Chris's purpose his entire life, even since he was a boy. Next, we see Chris riding a bucking bronco because, of course, he's a cowboy, finding his girlfriend cheating on him and kicking her out, and then seeing a terrorist bombing of U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. This inspires him to sign up for the Navy with the goal of becoming a SEAL. Suffering through a brutal boot camp as one of the oldest enlistees among the bunch, 
and then meeting his new girlfriend, Taya, at a bar where they have a drinking contest and she then vomits into a planter or something. Ever the gentleman, he gets her a safe ride home in a cab. While in boot camp, Chris is visiting Taya when the planes hit the towers on 9-11. She's terrified, and he holds her close. And now, officially in protector mode, it's time to get to the action. Chris's job in Fallujah is to protect the convoys as they clear the city by picking off gunmen in the mostly vacant buildings. His commanding officer tells the men that the city has been evacuated and that any military-age male left in the area is there to kill troops. So this alleviates the moral burden of killing any adult men, but what about the women and children? Well, remember the woman and child from the first scene? Chris shoots the child running toward the convoy with the grenade, but the woman immediately retrieves it to finish the job. Chris kills her as well. He's clearly traumatized. He tells his fellow soldier, Dude, that was evil like I'd never seen before. It's not how I envisioned my first one to go down. It's not the last time Chris will be put in such an unpleasant position. In another scene, he watches a child pick up a grenade through his scope. Under his breath, he pleads with the kid to put it down. He's clearly desperate not to have to kill another child. Finally, the kid drops the weapon and Chris lets out a sigh of relief. See, he's not a bad guy. He doesn't wantonly kill children, only when it's absolutely necessary. I'm going to give a quick aside. When I was in high school, a friend of mine had a brother who served in Afghanistan. He suffered from PTSD when he came back, and he told a story of something that happened early in his first tour. The soldiers would sometimes give candy to children in the area, and this had the natural result of kids running after convoys hoping to score some candy. One day, a child managed to latch onto the back of one of the trucks, and a soldier in the truck bed used the butt of his rifle to strike the child in the face, and the kid fell off the truck. He seemed all right, but it really messed with my friend's brother. To him, it was obvious that the kid just wanted candy, but to his fellow troop, it was at least possible that the kid was a threat. It's like feeding the bears and then getting pissed off when they break into your campsite. What American Sniper doesn't deal with is how the conflict got to the point where children are wielding grenades in the first place. It's just written off as evil, with no question about where that evil originates. What exactly leads to this evil? A common refrain among Americans is that they, whoever they is meant to refer to, have always been this way. The Middle East has always been a place of conflict and violence. Anyone with even a passing familiarity with the history of the region knows better, but that political position, and it is a political position, is very convenient if you want to wash your hands of the legacy of Western imperialism in the Middle East. We couldn't very well say, well, we've spent a century carving up and destabilizing the region, and now we need to send a bunch of Chris Kyles over there to shoot children with grenades. That screenplay would be a lot harder to sell and you certainly wouldn't get Clint Eastwood to direct it. Did I mention it's directed by Clint Eastwood? So I'm going to blah 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 through most of the rest of the movie, but basically Chris earns the nickname The Legend, he defeats his arch-enemy, an insurgent sniper, with an impossible mile-long shot, can't adjust to being back home with his family due to shell shock, and is just generally traumatized by what he's had to do in combat, all the friends he's lost, and how he couldn't save enough of his men. 
But upon coming home, he finds an outlet for all of this grief and trauma, helping fellow veterans find peace by taking them to the shooting range, which seems very bizarre to me. But it seems like such a happy ending. He's adjusting to civilian life, he finds meaningful work helping veterans recover from PTSD, and he's a loving husband and father. In the final scene, he's leaving home to take a particularly disturbed veteran to the shooting range when his wife tells him how proud she is of him, how far he's come, and how glad she is that he's come back to the world. He gets in his truck with the man, and text comes up on the screen. Chris Kyle was killed that day by a veteran he was trying to help. Cut to real-life footage of Kyle's massive funeral procession with hundreds of people standing by the road holding flags, then the funeral, and various photos of him and his wife, Taya. It's a gut-wrenching ending. But, of course, it's not the whole story. Now, it's going to be real obvious real quick why these little details were left out of American Sniper, again directed by Clint Eastwood, who's obviously got his own right-wing agenda. But some of the facts of Chris Kyle's life run very counter to the depictions of him in the film. The Clint Eastwood version of Kyle is very humble, and he's almost embarrassed by how much his fellow troops valorize him. He seems to hate the nickname The Legend, and is very uncomfortable whenever he's praised for his incredible sniper skills. This was not true of the real Chris Kyle. He was accused of vastly exaggerating his number of kills, sometimes citing as many as 320. The Navy's official records put that number close to 160. Okay, no big deal, right? I mean, the man's trying to sell his autobiography. And I can't imagine anyone who's trying to build a brand and a legacy wouldn't exaggerate a few details of their life. But some of Kyle's stories about his life are just absurd. For instance, he claimed that after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans in 2005, the federal government sent Kyle there to perch on top of the Superdome and pick off looters. He claims he killed 30 people, or maybe he and a fellow sniper killed 30 between them. His accounts vary. Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. There have been credible reports of law enforcement and private military contractors dispatched to New Orleans to kill looters. And Kyle did found a private security company, Kraft International, with the motto, despite what your mama told you, violence does solve problems. Classy. So it is at least possible that he sniped people from rooftops after Katrina, though it's never been verified that he was even there, and the rooftop of the central hub of aid and shelter is a very conspicuous place to be extrajudiciously murdering people. But Kyle also claimed that he killed two men who tried to rob him at a gas station outside of Dallas in 2009. He repeated the story to several friends and even claimed that there was surveillance video of the event. But when journalists tried to corroborate the story, police in the area had never heard of the killings, no videotape could be found, and no gas station in the area had any employees or owners who had ever heard any such thing. Kyle also claimed he received several medals for his service that the official records have no documentation for. But the biggest doozy by far is when Kyle went on the radio show Opie and Anthony and claimed that he'd punched out former pro wrestler and governor of Minnesota Jesse Ventura. According to Kyle, he was at a bar when Ventura criticized the Iraq war and told him, you deserve to lose a few guys. 
It's a story so ridiculous on its face that I can't even imagine why he'd make it up. And when Ventura sued for defamation, the courts agreed with him. By the time the final decision was given, Kyle had already died, and the suit was against his estate. After a lot of back and forth, the case was finally settled out of court for an unknown amount of money. Now, as for Kyle's killer, Eddie Ray Ruth, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and, according to his family, suffered severe PTSD. The day Kyle was killed, he wasn't alone with Ruth, as the movie suggests, but he was also with his friend Chad Littlefield. On the way to the range, Kyle texted Littlefield saying, This dude is straight up nuts. While in custody after he shot the two men, Ruth told police that they had treated him like he wasn't there, they wouldn't talk to him at all, and that was the reason he killed them. Certainly not a justifiable reason for murder, but a much more complicated story than the final text of American Sniper. Chris Kyle was killed that day by a veteran he was trying to help. All fictionalized depictions of real-life events are bound to be sort of funhouse mirrors, exaggerated or simplified, lacking nuance or containing outright fabrications. But the specific ways in which they differ from real events are important. They reveal a lot about us, our culture and ideology, the motivations of media producers, the stories that are comfortable to tell and comfortable to consume. And the final message from both of these films is that our interventions abroad are good, justified, and even necessary. Which has been the big buildup throughout this series, hasn't it? Academics who study media are usually very careful about presenting mass media as some kind of straightforward indoctrination machine. And it's true, we don't just guzzle this stuff down like a college kid doing a keg stand. But as I've said throughout this series, we're not immune to it either. I haven't talked much about the techniques that film studies scholars often focus on. I've stuck mostly to plot and the political and social context. But there are also camera angles, color schemes, and musical scores that all do a lot of almost magical work to keep us enthralled, to make us think highly of some characters and poorly of others. It can be a bit hypnotizing. And we don't do much in the public education system to train people to decode these signs. That's really dangerous. Almost everything we know about the world, we learn through media. Who is telling us these stories is important, but we forget about the people who have tales of their own who can't pitch a multi-million dollar film idea to a Hollywood producer. People like Latif Nasser, who was captured while fleeing Pakistan just three months after 9-11. He has been held in Gitmo since 2002. The human rights advocacy group Reprieve has investigated his case and says that the evidence that the United States has against him was obtained by torturing informants and is not credible. Much of Latif's 18-year captivity has been spent in solitary confinement, which is a form of torture. Latif spent a year in what is called Oscar Block, where loud generators with no discernible purpose run 24 hours a day. The lights stay on 24 hours a day. Detainees are given a blanket so thin that it cannot block out the light. In 2016, Latif was cleared to be released back to Morocco. But it took two years for the logistics to be sorted out to return him to his home country. By then, President Donald Trump had declared that there would be no further releases from Gitmo. 
He is still there to this day. In July of 2020, Latif wrote an open letter to Esquire Middle East. The end of the letter reads, To strip someone of his freedom, to deny him a trial, to reduce him to utter despair, these are violations of basic rights as a human being. I hope readers remember that when they think of me here, trapped in a story I cannot read, hear, or control, waiting for a happy ending that never comes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.